This is an ABC podcast. Hi and welcome to the History Listen. I'm Rebecca Huntley. Today we go back to the early 1990s. Hard to believe that was 30 years ago. And one of the most devastating conflicts in Europe in modern times, the breakup of Yugoslavia. For 27 years after World War II, President Josip Tito held six republics together in the tightly controlled socialist state of Yugoslavia. President Tito came of hard-living and hard-drinking peasant stock. The ever-present threat of Soviet interference after his break with the Kremlin leadership in 1948 helped to weld Serbs, Croats, Slovenians and many others, such as the Montenegrins and the Macedonians, into one nation. But after Tito's death in 1980, the Federation began to unravel, culminating in the events of 1991. Fighting is reported to have broken out in the rebel Yugoslavian Republic of Slovenia in the past few hours. Andriana Miller was 16 years old at the time. When the war was happening in my town, when they were attacking, I know as a kid I got out on a balcony and put the tape recorder in between these little spaces that you can see, and I was recording it. Andriana lived with her Bosnian-Croat family in Novi Travnik, in an ethnically mixed neighbourhood in the Republic of Bosnia-Herzegovina. And I remember my dad coming out to the balcony and going, what are you doing? Grabbing me in my hair and, like, dragging me out with this tape recorder. And me going, no, I'm just recording the war, you know? <laughs> In today's program, together with the memories of family and friends, Andriana pieces those traumatic days back together. And a warning, this program contains descriptions of war that some listeners might find distressing. This is the stamp of war. Those days of conflict feel really surreal now. Yet the trauma I experienced lives with me side by side every day. My mother had saved personal items from my life in Bosnia. Cassette tapes, diaries, photographs. It was definitely a Pandora's box. I feel it's now the right time for me to confront my past. My first call is to my parents, who are still living in our family home in Novitravnik. That's my dad. Hey, Dad. Yes, I'm here. In the flat. With your mother. Dad doesn't remember me recording the war, but Mum does. Oh, yeah, I remember that, when the sound barrier was broken. You closed all the window shutters, and your brother was outside, and he lay down between the buildings. We were all running from the factory to look for our children. These are the tapes. Look, two sides. You forget that there's two sides. So that's the tape that I think I recorded in the war on the balcony. That's my little brother. His name is Darko. He was 11 at the time. He collected all the bullets and everything that he found on the streets. I was singing with a school friend. We were trying to learn all these Western songs. 
Our small town of Novi Travnik was beautiful, with mountains surrounding it. It was once declared the cleanest town in Yugoslavia. It was built around a military equipment factory. We were a very mixed neighborhood, Muslims, Croatians and Serbians. And everyone worked together, lived side by side, that is, until 1991. The war really started for me on TV. Good morning. The Yugoslav army has tightened its grip on the Republic of Croatia. Then it started to get closer, and there was a sense of disbelief. Troops and tanks backed by Serbian militia have attacked in two regions. We'd have to fight our neighbors, but it escalated. Federal forces have also entered the Republic of Bosnia-Herzegovina. It's like in Australia, if you say Australian army is bombing Canberra. The Yugoslavian army was attacking and throwing grenades in Sarajevo. My town seemed to be in the middle of it. My dad remembers. Yes, the sound barrier was broken. <laughs> you pull the shutters down, you try to save our place from the glass breaking. Anybody that can hold a gun and pull the trigger is a soldier. People were losing their jobs. In fact, dad's factory closed down completely. Then food and water became scarce. Then there was confusion about who the enemy actually was. They were scared that the army will go through Vilenica and that they will break through the line. It was the front line and we were scared that the Bosnian army will break through it. My mom and dad began to really confuse me. It wasn't Serbian army, Dad? No, no. BH army was attacking a Croatian village. The BH was the Bosnian army, which was mostly Muslim. We didn't fight with Serbs, Andriana. What? We had the war with Serbs first, Mum. I think, darling, that you are mixing everything up. That prisoners are being systematically tortured and executed in Serbian-run death camps. As the fighting continued, allegiances changed. Serbia has denied this. Instead, saying that thousands of Serbian prisoners have been killed by Muslims and Croats. Once the Serbians got the land they wanted, Muslims and Croats continued fighting each other. It was especially hard for families of mixed ethnicity, like my friend Svetlana. She now lives in England, but her family then in Bosnia were in a bad situation. My dad is Serbian, my mum is Muslim. During the war, at the start of it, my father was forced out of Bosnia because he didn't want to choose the side to fight for. They basically told him if he was not going to choose the side, he had to leave because my mum and the rest of the family are going to die. And he went into exchange on what they used to call the no man's land. And basically my dad was exchanged for some other person that came back into Bosnia and he went to Serbia. Svetlana didn't see her father again till after the war ended. I also had a neighbour, Dobrila. She was about ten years older, like a big sister. She was a mentor to me. And then when I turned 18, she got me my first job as a translator for the UN. Oh, look at this. This is this to certify Andriana Miller is employed at Vito's camp as a United Nations translator. And there I met up again with my school friends, Leila and Svetlana. I think we have some photographs of that, Andriana. Look at this picture. 
shirt. The massive jackets, the military jackets. Look how long it is. It's covering my fingers. You know, I'm 18, 19 there. What do I know? Zero. No fear. Now I think about it, I'm going, oh my God. I have confusing memories from that time. There was a British soldier there, Matthew, who worked with Svetlana, Leila and me. I haven't spoken to him in about 10 years. I'm going to give him a call. He lives in Yorkshire, in northern England. Adriana, hello. <laughs> hello, Matthew. We are a million miles apart geographically. Nice to hear your voice. <laughs> Did you know what were you coming to when you were sent onto your mission in Bosnia? It's an awful long time ago now. That was the summer of 92. We were informed that we were going to Bosnia. And uh, most of us certainly had no idea where Bosnia was. I must have been just 30 years old. The people I worked with most were you, Leila, and Svetlana. I can't remember what my parents thought about all this at the time. Do you remember when I found out that I got a job at the UN? Yes. How wouldn't I remember? I was working then in Bratstvo, and your mother called me on the phone to inform me that you would like to go. How did you feel about me working for UN? That was a huge worry. You were young, Adriana, 18 years old. You were going to see people getting killed with a bullet going through their head. It's easy to see a wound made by a cut, but when you see a wound that even I, who was in the army, have not seen, that was a lot of worry. This was the worst, darkest scenario where people died for real. My father was right. I was too young and I did see a lot of very bad things, people killed and tortured awful things people do to each other in war. Absolutely crazy. I would never choose to do that in, mm. in my head now. <laughs> and I think the same thing has happened to you because yep. we had similar experiences. And yep. on a lot of occasions, if you remember, we had to go and meet the opposing sides and have lots of different meetings. And mm. we would go there up in uh, armoured vehicles and most of these roads were booby-trapped with uh, lots of you know landmines on the roads. Mm. And um, we like crazy teenage girls, we were bloody 18, used to think, oh yeah, we can do this. So all the soldiers would come out to clear the mines off the road so we can go past and they would kick these mines off the road and we would come after them and we'd go, oh yeah, I'll kick one as well. So we would kick these mines to the side of the road, laugh it all off and carry on to our next point. Here we were with blueberries and all our vehicles were painted white. And what we were there to do was to help ensure that the humanitarian aid was getting into Middle Bosnia. Escorting aid will not be simple, nor without its dangers. This is the VHS tape. This is where some of the aid to Bosnia ends up. Everybody on the tape are the people that I work with, from the drivers to the officers to the squaddies to the quartermasters who gave me the uniform. It wasn't just the peacekeeping. You actually had to watch war. The hours we spent driving around middle Bosnia in soft-skinned Land Rovers with people all over the place shooting at each other. Julian would be driving me for a translation somewhere. With interpreters sitting in the back of our Land Rovers as we drove around the place. And I took these pictures. 
of all the houses as we would go through, and I didn't even know the names of the villages. You know, completely destroyed, half of the houses missing through bombing, um, roofs that are just completely taken off, windows broken, you know, empty shelves, skeletons of homes that people lived in, rubble everywhere, zero people. You see, there's no people. Look at that. That's where three of us worked as military translators. I know, and the picture of me at the age of 19 and 44 now. <laughs> and um, actually quite sad we looked. We were only 19 there, weren't we? So I think, so. I think we look much older than what we, what we were. In that year, I think we have aged. We didn't really have those years as a normal 17 and 18 year old looking forward to boyfriend, college, yeah. boyfriends. <laughs> yeah, I think we've missed that completely. Plonked us into a different world of mayhem and destruction. Mm. The one I do remember was the truck bomb. Uh, where a man was handcuffed to the steering wheel of a truck. The truck was full of explosives and he was told to drive it into the old town. It was the Croats that did this to him and the part of the town he drove to was the Muslim part, the old part of the town. And that bomb went off and within a very short time we were there, I was there. In the box is an old military diary of mine. I remember I had to carry it at all times. So bizarre looking through these notes. This is all like, find me these people, find if they're alive. Just names and names and names. Patrol of snipers. Mortar shelling, grenades falling for five. And these are all pictures of soldiers and this was our military translator's office. You know, and these are the boys that saw so much death. You know, some soldiers committed suicide, even British soldiers committed suicide there. For years afterwards, I did have nightmares. It was in about April 93. I remember picking up one guy, I was dragging him backwards. He was facing me and he looked at me in the eye and he said, Khwala, which means thank you. And he died immediately. He had massive internal bleeding. And when I picked him up, probably all the blood just drained straight out of the bottom of his body and he died there and then. It was his face and him saying thank you and then dying, which was always the nightmare for years to come. It isn't all one-sided. The Croats have been driven from their homes as well. But here it's the Muslims who have suffered. Their houses burnt, they have been murdered, their minarets have been toppled. A plague of ethnic cleansing across the land. Do you remember when UN entered Ahmici? Where the burning happened? The second biggest massacre in the in the Bosnian war after Srebrenica was a place called Akhmici, and that was only about five miles from our base. All of this happened less than 10 minutes from a base where there are more than 700 UN peacekeepers. Their mandate does not extend to defending civilians. I think it was Dabrilla, our friend, that was there first, and yeah. I think Leila, she was there, one of the first people that entered that awful, awful place of the, the terrible burn, yeah. massacre. And I remembered being pushed to the side a couple of times when we came across 
these horrific events. Um, sometimes it couldn't have been helped because it's just that it's happening right in front of you, somebody mm. dying or somebody who's already dead or mm. dismembered, but it's horrific. I go past this place. Every time I go home, uh, it gives me a very disturbing and awful um, feeling inside still. Some people were in tears when they saw the effect on a family when a, an RPG exploded inside the house. There's a war going on outside, and so people run into the house and hide behind sofas, this sort of stuff. And then an RPG goes through the first wall, explodes on the second wall, all the oxygen disappears, and everyone dies with their mouths open, and then the house catches fire, and you've got charred bodies. I remember your arrival home from Ahmici, and you were in shock, and you verbally attacked us all from the door. You were furious, Andriana, questioning me like I did something. I told you, why are you attacking me? These lunatics did it. I suppose you were angry. Mom was really thinking that I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. She was really worried. I remember that we were very protected by Matthew and the guys that we were with because they didn't want us to see these things. The raids put UN peacekeepers at risk. We cannot allow the world to war where the white paint of United Nations neutrality will do little to shield the machine beneath and the men inside. Everyone was beginning to feel unsafe, including the UN. And then the worst news. Sixth of the seventh, ninety-three. Dobrilla is dead. They killed her last night in front of the house. My friend Dobrilla, my mentor who got me the job, was shot dead inside the pink zone of the UN. And that's when we became really scared. You were only eighteen years old, the three of you, and you'd see more violence and bloodshed than most people should ever have to see in their whole lives. And I remember Matthew coming into the room in the morning, waking me up, and he said to me, I'm going to take all three of you out. But I felt that, that you'd had enough. There's no way should you continue in this awful situation. We can't protect you. We can't protect you being in the UN uniforms. We can't protect you having a blue beret. They're targeting your interpreters. I was a captain in the army, and I um, respectfully requesting that visas would be issued to these uh, interpreters because they've been through a very difficult time and they need a short break in Britain. And, uh, of course, they'll be returning to work after a couple of weeks' rest in Britain. And I think the ambassador looked at my face and knew damn well I was not exactly telling the truth as well and immediately issued three visas and smiled and shook my hand and wished me luck. I asked my mother what her reaction was to the possibility of me being in England. If you can stay, stay. Don't come back. We don't know what is going to happen here, darling. I remember my mum, this is so ingrown in my memory, and she was crying as I was going into this armoured vehicle. I was like, Mum, I'll see you in, in a week. She was like crying her eyes out like she's never ever gonna see me again literally like she she like she knew i didn't bloody know everybody was extremely nervous and anxious un were so nervous as they were constantly questioned and stopped on the roads by local people 
People wanted to know who and what they were carrying and who stayed and who left Trab. I remember that all three of us basically got into a, a, a vehicle and we were driven down to Croatia to split. And you left. You went to the UN base and from the UN base you went to split. We sang all the way down to Croatia. In that jeep, in the white jeep that's with the right. door open. Yeah, that's right. We sang crazy poppy songs and rocky songs that we used to listen to before the crazy mayhem war started. And from Split you went to Germany. You didn't even say goodbye to your dad. I was just glad you were not at war anymore. I was so happy that you ran away from that hell. And then we got onto the military flight. They separated us and then right. Matthew came in and said, do not speak without me being present. We were questioned entering into the country and then we were somewhere in England eating our first McDonald's. And we used the and, toilet um, and we didn't know how to flush that's it. That's right, that's right. <laughs> I went into buns. the toilet and um, instead of flushing the toilet, I pulled a, a fire alarm and the whole building went buzzing and I was like, oh my God, what is happening? I ran out and literally, I was like, I was telling everybody, I think it was Matthew, I was like, I think I've pulled a fire alarm. You came here to Yorkshire, where I am now, to my parents' home. And we soon became local celebrities. Look at this. Oh, and these newspaper cuttings, look Articles at that. Articles of us when we arrived in Halifax. Sunday, May 5th, 1994. Well, it would have been the Halifax Evening Courier. Andriana, a Croat, Leila, a Muslim, and Svetlana, a Serb. The girls, who all worked as interpreters for British soldiers Back home in, in Bosnia. Bosnia their peoples are pitted against each yeah. other. Fled to England to seek political war. asylum. The girls were at school together in the ethnically mixed town of And living with friends of the soldiers in Halifax. And you all three went into breakfast telly one morning. Hello, welcome back. Still London News Network 94. But today, we have a tale of three young women. Now, in Bosnia, they would be forced to be enemies, but here in London, they're friends living together. But you are only 19, Andriana, all of you. How are you coping in London on your own without family around you? We help each other. We are there for each other. That's how we cope. <laughs> Go to college, have a laugh quarrel about who is going to wash the dishes. <laughs> and that's it. Well, that's the thing. Do you never, ever row about the political side of what is happening in Bosnia? Because at one stage you were saying, uh, Andriana and Leila, your fathers were fighting each other. Yeah. It's horrible what's happening in Bosnia, and uh, they're forced to fight. I mean, how can you say, I don't want to fight, I don't like this war, when the shooting going on around you? I hope there's miracle to come. We were living with Matthew's parents in Yorkshire. We were pretty naive. We had no idea that we'd never return home. In fact, it was another two years before the war ended. Svetlana's family was still separated and none of us could talk to our parents. And it was still not safe to return. And we were all distraught. And at that point, I remember becoming a complete zombie. It was downward spiral, really. <laughs> because we couldn't go back home. We didn't know what we were doing. Um, 
Literally, we had nothing. We couldn't speak to our parents to see whether they're alive or not. And this went on for days and months. I mean, even though that we were together, I think that's what kind of saved our sanity a bit. But all made us more crazy. <laughs> uh, yeah. We always try to have fun and stay positive, but I think um, it was very hard at that point, and that lasted for many years, I think. My mother died a few months ago, but she's the one who made sure that you were all given bedrooms here, made sure you were fed, made sure that you were to consider this to be your home forever if you wanted it. And I think there is one last entry, and then I stopped. I've stopped writing in this diary on the 17th of 793. I have some fear in my heart. Uh, I don't know what it is. I do not know what I feel. Oh, that's it. Bosnian peace accord due for signing later tonight. Last-minute talks have been held south of Paris to persuade the leaders of all the former Yugoslav republics to agree to mutual diplomatic recognition. The war ended in 1995. We were all still living in England with temporary refugee status. All of our parents wanted us to stay in England. Svetlana did stay. Leila went to America and in 2006 I came to Australia. Going through all the items my mother saved for me has been about unwinding threads of my past. I kept all your things, Andriana. I didn't want to move anything until you come back. These memories and this box that my mother has given me is this Pandora's box. I don't want to close it because I want my monsters to be visible. You know, some people don't need to talk about it, just like my mother. Some people just want to let it go. For me, it's really important to let something in rather than let go because it hunts you down in your nightmares. It hunts you down through... You know, grief. Grief just surprises you at every corner. It's like a, a, a bit of a film that we were in that many years ago. And I think it's what brings it to life when you have somebody like you talk about it and then you know that it's, it is real, it did happen. Doesn't matter how much I want to remove myself from it, there is a stamp that it's there and it cannot be removed. I have been stamped. And it is, it is the stamp of war. This is the stamp of war. The Stamp of War was produced by Regina Botris and Ros Blewett. The sound engineer was John Jacobs. For more information and to see photographs of the three very young United Nations interpreters, head to our webpage. And for the best audio documentaries this summer, tune in to the History Listen and Earshot. Find them both on the RN website or wherever you get your ABC podcasts. 
I'm Rebecca Huntley. Catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.